John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 461.RV1620, certificate number 50204. Have you ever considered that if we're talking to listeners millions of years in the future, that, uh, that even the continents of this planet will not look like they did in our time? I have considered that. How recently? I, I, I think about the How future. How often do you consider it? I think about it all the time and I imagine. So do you believe that there's a universal grammar? Are you a Chomskyite? Do you believe that there is some kind of fundamental language? I think I don't. Because a million years from now, futurelings have to be communicating via a completely different methodology. It's going to be flashing lights or colors or smells. There can't possibly be language as we know it. And so they have to be translating this into some sort of squid ink language. What's the squid ink for on fleek? On fleek. On fleek. Really? Squid ink is just a French accent? Yeah. On fleek. Well, you know, do do squids have eyebrows? You would have to find the nearest analog to having really on point tentacle hygiene or something. On fleek. Um, But I do think about the future, the the, um, geographical evolution of the world and what that portends for the like the corporeal nature of futurelings. Because the, uh, you know, the continents are really, you know, the outlines of the earth are just something we take for granted. We assume that... The, north the, is the, north the, and south is south. And this is, well, we've talked about that. The poles won't change, but also that the, you know, the, the continents will physically move around on the plates. Like in, I'm looking at a map of what earth might look like in 250 million years. And uh, South America has now split off, and it's an island. Right. That and, makes sense. And Africa has kind of floated north to the degree that um, Brazil is now, like the, the easternmost point of Brazil is now kind of kissing the Cape of Good Hope. Um, has has uh, the Atlantic Ocean... Atlantic Ocean is just a little lake now. little tiny I mean, squashed it's, lake. It's not tiny. It's, it's, a, it's a huge Mediterranean-sized sea. Right. But but or bigger, uh, but it is North DLC. America has continued on its inexorable uh, path to crush Spain. <laughs> is, that, is that has that been our goal? 
ever since. If we can't ever, win the World Cup, we're going to literally do it. I mean, ever, ever since uh, the sinking of the of the Maine. I mean, it might actually be two supercontinents. Um, one actually good one with all the Northern Hemisphere continents. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the Americas, in, in this version, the Americas have crashed together with Africa and Eurasia, and there's kind of a triangular, what's left of the Indian Ocean is now a little lake between South America. And, and then the other lesser Southern Hemisphere continents, Australia and Antarctica, have formed their own little Southern Hemisphere. For futurelings that still have Google, how do they look this up? Oh, I just looked for future continents maps and found a few projections. Of course, we don't know. We can follow current trends. Right. But, but somewhere uh, along the line. But we're, uh, we're getting back to some Pangea-like world. So now why was it in the interest of the continents to have, um, to have moved apart from Pangea uh, and then it's only to scre- return? It's just a screensaver. You just happened to be born at the moment when the screensaver looked like this. Everything kept bouncing around. I see. For a while, all the little globs were globbed together, and then they weren't. Right. Neither one is the natural or steady state of the world. And does this all account for um, the rising seas? No, that's a separate variable. I mean, that's what we'll see sooner, right? I mean, none of us will live to see any of these outlines look any different than they are today, with the exception of coastal areas. If sea levels do rise within our lifetime, then we're going to see... you know, in just a, a few centuries, a map of Florida could look different. I'm looking at a map. Some uh, islands could be gone. Like a climate change map where half of South America, by which I mean the whole central part of South America, is underwater. And all that's left is a Andean uh, strip and then a little kind of Brazilian uh, mega island. That doesn't seem cool. Usually when you get a Brazilian, there's nothing left. But... But this is weird. It's a. It's a. Uh, it looks like a water redistribution because Alaska is connected to Russia in this model. So water goes up some places and down others. <laughs> well, I think what you're seeing is plates rising faster than sea level oh, will in some places. Sea level is rising everywhere. It's just a question of where plates are rising or sinking because that happens as well. The motion is not all lateral. Right. Um, but because we can't see this, none of us see anything close to a geological time frame. We think of geography as a constant. Right. Um, I certainly do. If this has always been, if this is a desert now, it will always be a desert, even though there's some, you know, 40,000 year cycle of, of what shape the Sahara Desert is, for example. Um, Somebody on Instagram yesterday <clears throat> who runs an uh, Instagram page called Seattle Back Then or something like that posted a picture where they said, here's a picture of a trolley just north of Dearborn. And I commented, I think that that picture of a trolley is actually a few blocks south of Dearborn. Could and, you tell? And they they said, um, actually, no. At which point I backed off and said, my bad. And then they replied a second time and said, oh, my God, you're right. And then they expressed— That's, that's a phrase you never hear on the internet. I, oh, it, my God, you're right. Except when people write me because I'm always right. <laughs> and uh, then they wrote and said, how could you have recognized— that so fast, what kind of weirdo are you? Are you John Roderick on this, or, yeah. or are you Seattle fan four twenty or whatever? Uh, yeah, right. I, I'm no, I'm John Roderick, and I was you know I have no I have no answer to that question. But geography is constant to me, and this picture from 1921 did not fool me. I knew what corner it was. It's a, what was the tip off, by the way? 
well, the tip-off was a, a corner of a building which they had attributed to a printing company, which has a very, very identical-looking building mm. a few blocks away. But, you're, you're, but your keen eye was not fooled. But I know that building to actually be a, a tiny corner of a building that is further south, which was a somewhat famous um, auto parts manufacturing building. But also, clearly, Rainier Avenue at that point was was uh was flat and had not begun the climb up the hill to Jackson that Rainier does when it passes Dearborn. <sighs> I mean, I mean it's really tough to can, can, to have to correct everyone in the world. I mean, but. Seattle is one place where terrain actually has changed in the last century or slightly more, just because so much dirt was moved around and regraded. As part to, of a, to, to build the city as we know it, right? A project called the Regrade, which was meant to flatten Seattle's seven hills and make it more amenable to commerce. It didn't work. It did not. There's still a ton of hills. They did a lousy job. They did, and also they finished that project immediately before the crash of 1929. So they took down this totally vibrant, uh, like business area that had beautiful hotels on it and flattened it out in order to make commerce happen and then the crash resulted in that flat area being basically one story warehouses for the next 90 years but that that kind of thing is relatively rare usually you can come back to a place 100 years later and the coastline will look as it did the hills will be where they were the trees will be taller although manhattan has done a considerable amount of infill mm-hmm. on the lower half of manhattan there've been plenty of like Reclamation projects. Urban reclamations, yeah. yeah. And more and more now with, um, you know, with real estate scarce in a lot of areas. We've you know, talked you, about the Netherlands. Sure. Doubling in size. And you, you, could, you build islands in Hong Kong, you build islands in Dubai, you build islands places where it's crowded and you can move some dirt. You build islands in the stream. <laughs> but sometimes islands just appear. Sometimes the earth decides it wants to be a different shape and uh, it will bypass its usual slow bureaucratic processes for getting that done and will actually, uh, what is there, a political analogy for this? It'll declare martial law and something will just happen. Because of volcanism? In most cases, volcanism. Uh, to the about 20 miles south of the western tip of Sicily... Uh, we now know is a vast underwater, a single vast underwater volcano. It was long known to be a volcanically active region. Obviously, it's not far from Mount Etna. But we now know that- Etna, what, I'm glad to meet you. <laughs> I'm glad you have a catchphrase for when somebody <laughs> says Etna. <laughs> That's good. That'll come in handy. The snows of Mount Ida, enough to make me shudder. <laughs> what even is that? I played Agamemnon once in a production of the Oris Dia, and I still have uh, I still have a couple of his soliloquies in my head. These are quotes from uh, what Euripides that you're that you're sharing with us. <laughs> yeah, I'm I can't so. believe I didn't get the reference to. Uh... <laughs> so was this a hip hop uh, adaptation? Like the, that's the thing. I mean, it's a translation upon a translation upon a translation. I want to so. see Lin Manuel Miranda's rhyming <laughs> Oris Dia. Uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's, and it's volcanically active down there. It's, uh, you know, people have long seen, known that there's kind of fumaroles and, and spouting sulfurous stuff in that part of the Mediterranean. I'm sure it's the origin for a lot of Greek myths about 
dragons. Cyclops and sea monsters and whatnot. Right. Um, but we now know that really the whole area is one massive submerged volcano that uh, some Italian ge- geologists now call Empedocles. Empedocles. Which is a cool volcano name. It is. It's named for the philosopher who first uh, arranged matter into the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. I assume because an underwater volcano has at least three of those? Earth, air, not a lot fire. Of air. Not a lot of air. Well, gas. I guess. There you go. All four. There you go. Yeah. Good job, uh, Empedocles. Um, it's, it's huge. The, the volcano is about the size of the District of Columbia. Hmm. It's about as tall as the Eiffel Tower. Um, that's from not, the sea bottom. From the sea bottom, yes. But that is not quite tall enough to clear sea level in the Mediterranean under normal circumstances. I'm surprised that the Mediterranean at that point is only as deep as the Eiffel Tower. That seems not very deep, actually, for a sea. You're not wrong. The Mediterranean is a mile down right. on average. Right. And some parts are, uh, wow, the Calypso Deep off, off the coast of Greece is is almost three miles down. Um, mm. But this point is, uh, for whatever reason, this is shallow enough at this point between Sicily and, and Tunisia um, that there are seamounts that approach sea level. Wow, that's impressive. And I mean, I guess there's a giant island right there called Sicily. Yeah, it's only I mean, it's only 20 miles off Sicily. It's not unprecedented. <laughs> right. <laughs> you could put an island there and in fact someone did. <laughs> the modern history of Ferdinandia begins in the summer of 1831. Great summer. Do you remember it well? Oh, it was nice. Well, it wasn't so great off the coast of Sicily where there were some unusual tremors. And sailors and coastal people started smelling sulfur. And it got bad enough that the soot started to, the smoke from the sulfurous soot started to turn silverware black. Smoke from sulfurous soot, sailors delight. Soil silverware. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, this is a part of the world where that happened pretty often. But uh, the bubbling and the, the, you know, the bubbling sea turns, starts to turn into a big column of smoke. Huh. Um, which is scares residents who even as recently as the 19th century are starting to think this might be a sea monster because that's, you know, that's what I, that's my default assumption. Sure, what when, else is it going to be? When something goes wrong. Sea monster. They would, you know, they would see, uh, the you know, sailors would pass by and see dead fish floating around and people would think, uh-oh, sea monster? Well, the thing about a sea monster is, of course, it would stay in one location and take weeks to surface. Because it's so big, because it's lazy. It's yeah. Well, it's a monster. It's it's uh it's uh trying to lure you into into your unawares. Uh huh. Trying to lure you by uh, killing fish and and sm- <laughs> and blackening silverware. <laughs> and then when you least what a lure. Ex- when you least expect it, <laughs> out it pops. Oh, you 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 coquette. What happens instead is two weeks after the first sulfur bubbles appear, a little patch of land suddenly pops up in the Mediterranean, you know, 20 miles off the coast of Sicily where no land had been before. Kind of used to this a little bit in the South Pacific, it seems to be a thing, but, but I, yeah, Sicily's, wow. Just a new, a new part of Italy appearing is unusual. Um, and for the next couple of months, this, what starts out as a little rock starts to grow. It is, of course, Empedocles spitting out all kinds of, you know, a big pile of volcanic rock. Hot and uh, yeah. then cooling And then rock. it hits the Mediterranean and you get basalt. And so this island begins to grow. 
Basalt and, makes really bad vacation turf. Is you, do you have this uh, from experience? Yeah, it's like really sharp. It, it doesn't even look that bad. It looks like something you could kick, but if you try, it hurts. It's solid. I mean, anybody who's been to Hawaii knows, um, you know, there's a very thin layer of, of lush greenery and white sand above just punishing yeah. basalt and pumice <laughs> that just wants to scrape you up. I still have a scar right here from my most recent basalt scar scrape. Uh, so as the months go on, the island grows and grows. It, it's soon high enough to be visible from the coast of Sicily. Wow. I mean, it's, it eventually reaches a, a elevation of about 200 meter or 200 feet, this new pile of Whoa. basalt. Uh, and it's uh, a few miles around. It's, um, Whoa. It's big enough that it has, uh, a, you know, the, the tall mountain on the northeastern side. And there's two little ponds in the center, one red and one yellow because of, I guess, different bacterial activity. Um, so suddenly there is new geography in the middle of the Mediterranean. And, uh, and it's appeared at a very tactical location. You know, it's very near Mediterranean shipping lanes. Right. It's right between... Sort of close to... Italy and Africa. Tunisia. Right. And everyone's afraid, what if this is the beginning of a land bridge between Europe uh, and Africa? What if the Strait of Sicily suddenly stops being a strait oh. and now Europe is connected to Africa? So even back then, fear of the developing world <laughs> right. is, a, is a huge part of policy. And Mal so Malta is right there. There's a lot going on in that little Strait of Sicily. Uh, it's very strategic. The um, you know all the European powers that are guarding against each other have their own little islands where they can base shipping. But this new island is uniquely well situated to keep an eye on anybody going through the Strait of Sicily. And in 1831, you're still using cannon to uh, to guard straits, and so this as a cannon emplacement could be pretty useful. I guess you'd need a place to, uh, you know, if it becomes a real island, it becomes a place, maybe it has a harbor, you know, yep. you can right. take ships there, maybe you can take on water and supplies. So Europe's powers mobilize to claim this brand new island for them. Oh, this is exciting. A, a British uh, vessel, a British Navy vessel gets there first and calls it Graham Island in, or, in honor of the first Lord of the Admiralty. It's been a while since you could name new stuff on Earth, right? It's exciting. Suddenly there's a new part of Europe. Graham Island. That can be named. And in fact, if you look at the Wikipedia entry for Ferdinandea, it is still called Graham Island. I wonder if, uh, if in the United Kingdom there's a short list of names that are reserved for uh, naming any new land that's discovered. Like Graham was next. On the, the short list. The thing about living in the West Coast is you see just how much of our landscape is just named after random British naval guys <laughs> who were who were do a favor. Or right, something. the second navigator in James Cook's uh, ship got sure. a, you know a mountain named after him, like Vancouver and Puget and Rainier. All these people who have super famous names on maps now. Right, they didn't. They didn't accomplish. They weren't celebrities in life, but I guess that's the way to do it. Like, just be in the right place at the right time and be on a map forever. I feel like the Brooks Range in Alaska, there were an awful lot of unnamed mountains up there. And when naming time came, it was just, it was the same kind of like gold rush of getting a mountain named Ooh, me, 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 me. <laughs> That's what those people do who um, answer those ads in Scientific American about getting a star named after them. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know that's not real. Uh, 
But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say Graham Island, even though that's what Wikipedia says, because that's the name of the oppressor. This is close to Sicily. Right. And the second people to plant a flag on the island were the the kingdom of the two Sicilies. I, it's nice that at this point in time, the Italians are the oppressed minority. <laughs> <laughs> not, a, not a people we think of now as an oppressed minority, but-, but No, because they're today they're always pushing us around. Well, and anyone that interacts with the, with the British Empire is- is interacting with the oppressor. They're the they're the er oppressor, and they got there first, just like they always uh, do. But Italy gets there second, and King Ferdinand of Sicily, Ferdinand II, names the island Isola Ferdinandea, like Ferdinand's island, after himself. A real ego trip, yes. right? Right. Um, it does seem like they have the better claim. Well, it's right there. Right. The Spanish get there too and call it Corral. The French. Uh, get there too. They they uh they compare the uh, eruption to a, a champagne bottle being uncorked. That's what they think of. Oh, well done, France. I that, mean, France that's very and, on brand for them. France and Spain still have a better claim to it than England. But England got there first. Yeah, it was really first past the post back then, right? Right. Uh, and the the uh, French call it uh, the Ile Julia, like um, be, I guess because it's July and maybe because of the July Revolution. Ile Julia. So four different countries have a name, have a different name for this little tiny island about the size of what? I don't know, Central Park or something. And the conflict rages because everybody wants to make sure they're in on the ground floor just in case Ferdinandia is the big new thing. So huge diplomatic squabbles are going on. In the meantime, people want to visit. You know, this is the ultimate new vacation destination. So adventurous Europeans of all stripes go ashore on Ferdinandia. Uh, Interesting. The novelist Sir Walter Scott is among them. He's a bit of a romantic, I guess, and wants to see what it's like. It's a little underwhelming when you get there. Um, it's very fragmented and soft rock. Uh. So it's like you're walking in a just a field of, of loose stone. You're not walking on sunshine. No, I don't know what, I don't know what surface that would be. That would be sunshine. Like it was grassy and wanted wear. That's Although right. as for that, the passing there had warned them really about it same. is not grassy and it doesn't want wear. It's brand new out. Of, this is the newest rock you can get. I see. This is straight from the factory. It's probably still warm. Well, John, you and I have something in common. What? We you have, and I have something in common. Normally, we're the original odd couple. <laughs> You're so messy, and I'm such an uptight neatnik. Yep. But we've both been guests on our friend Luke Burbank's wonderful podcast, Too Beautiful to Live. Yeah, Luke Burbank and our uh, and our other Seattle friend Andrew Walsh. I was uh, I first met Luke when he was still doing that show on Cairo. Yep, me too. I, I've been on his Cairo show. He got me in there because he had seen me blog about meta fiction. Like I did a series of blog posts about things I thought were meta, like uh, Arrested Development or Animal Man comics and uh, Iranian movies. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to talk about meta stuff because he didn't know what it meant. And we really hit it off. Yeah. And uh, and I know you guys are friends as well. But it's it's a great show like that because I think he's a really good interviewer. He is a great interviewer. He's very funny. He's funny, and you know, the thing about Luke is he comes across as kind of a suave game show host kind of person, but he's he's an extremely smart, thoughtful, sensitive guy who's also a smarmy game show host. Like when public radio needs to fill in for Peter Sagal on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, of all the uh, smart and, and slightly 
game show hosty people in America, they pick Luke. Yeah. Like he's really good in that gig. And one of the amazing things about Too Beautiful to Live is that they managed to do this show every damn day. It's crazy to me. I, as someone who podcasts and podcasts every day, uh, Too Beautiful to Live still astonishes me. I mean, it's it's 90 minutes long every single day. They have, uh, you know, they create a great community out of their listeners. I think because of that regular contact and they call that the, uh, Luke and Andrew call that the, the point of the show. Now their mission is to cure global loneliness. Whew. What's, which that's really tall sp- order that speaks to our moment, but I feel like they have, they have it, whatever that, whatever that ineffable quality is. I, I like being on their show. I like being in their company. And I, I do feel like the, the too beautiful to live listener fan base is one of the more kind of inclusive and, um, self-supporting groups of like internet fans I can think of. I don't think of them as a bitter and in and caustic group of people at all. No, it's a great podcast. They're friends of Omnibus. You can find Too Beautiful to Live on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Omnibus. I mean, be careful because it's a bad drug and Luke Burbank will sap your precious bodily fluids. I I, I don't know if I I don't know if I was meant to say that. I mean, he's, let's not let's not tell everybody. They're, about, a, they're a dangerous threat to humanity. They're vampires. Should I not have? Should I mean I was uh, kind of going off script here a little bit? But. No, it said we're supposed to mention mention that they are vampires. Oh, okay. Because okay. if you invite Phew. them in, then it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't say Luke Burbank three times. Now, interestingly, Tunisia was an Ottoman territory at this time, and I'm surprised that they also did not claim. It seems like a thing that the Ottomans would would have rushed to to plant a flag too. I wonder if this is the kind of thing where our history is kind of filtered through the European diplomatic squabble over it. Right. And, and maybe so we, we, yeah, yeah. The Turks were there too, but oh, no, but that's the who thing. cares we, about that? At the time, boy, at, you know, the Turks were still the real, the real threat to Europe. I, I would, I would assume that that would have been, and it would have been something to mobilize the against, right? The real scary thing, right? Because France later invaded Tunisia and took control of it as one of their, talk about the bad guys, talk about the colonizers. So so yeah, France there would have would have really inflamed a lot of passions. Well, maybe that's why France wanted, uh, as they would have called it, Ile Julia. I it's, think uh, they did. It's a great base for their for their North African mm-hmm. expansionism. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, the, the French uh, the, the other thing the French want actually is to make it into a holiday resort because you know so many people want to come. This is like new beachfront property. This is like Lex Luthor in the first Superman. Right. It's their own Ibiza. <laughs> exactly. They missed out. <laughs> Ibiza's already full of like guys from uh right, Germans new, and Dutch. And new guys from Newcastle and uh who are dancing in Sunderland b- in big bubble filled uh warehouses. And look alike Irish pubs. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh and it's you know, it really inspires a lot of writers. Walter Scott goes there, but no fewer than three other writers produce novels based on the uh, emergence of Ferdinand Day. It really because a new island had never happened in human history. It really seems to spark people's imaginations. Right. 
James Fenimore. A new place to get shipwrecked. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shipwreck was the number one plot <laughs> MacGuffin for novels back then. <laughs> the, the, uh, the plots back then were like man versus drowning, man versus coconuts. Right. <laughs> man versus pirates. James Fenimore Cooper wrote uh, not one of his greatest works, but a novel called The Crater or Vulcan's Peak. These were, this was at a time when people were really fast writers, too. This was like yeah, uh, could, of the moment, right? You could really churn it out. Ripped from yeah, the headlines. I guess in a time when you really don't have a lot of other, you know, you don't have round-the-clock cable news, you don't really have a lot of other real-time journalism, you know, the new installment of a novel would really fill in for that. It would be ripped from the headlines. It would, it would be hot news. Right. Uh, Serialized in punch. <laughs> right. So, uh, James Fenimore Cooper writes The Crater about a, a volcanic, uh, volcanic, about volcanic upheaval on a new island. Alexander Dumas writes The Sparrow Nara. And Jules Verne writes no fewer than two novels about a brand new appearing island. Most famously, Cap- The Wonderful Adventures of Captain Antifer, which is kind of, it's a mad, 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 mad world style mm-hmm. treasure hunt uh, where... Uh, a, a brand new island is the uh, is the jackpot. It's the um, the, the secret location uh, where the treasure was buried, but unfortunately, it had returned to the depths. So it's kind of a Tintin style twi- tw- twist where the, <laughs> the, you almost get the treasure and then it's gone. So uh, Europe is just captivated by this new island, but unfortunately, it does not stick around. Uh, it is made of, again, it's kind of soft lumps of rock and the Mediterranean is full of wind and waves. And it starts to, as soon as the eruption starts, Ferdinand starts getting erupted faster than it can stand. Uh-huh. And oh. so within a few months, the island is gone. Oh. And we now know that this is a cycle that, re- so much for the holiday resort. We right. now know that this is a cycle that repeats every time there's eruptions, pseudo, you know, sufficiently large eruptions from Empedocles. Uh, there, we now know there were reports back to the first Punic War of uh, stuff bubbling out of the Mediterranean there. So Fernandea comes and goes. It's like Brigadoon. Huh. Sometimes it's there. I think it reappeared again in the 19th century briefly and then went away. You know, a ship will sight, hey, that, wasn't, that shoal wasn't there before. And then overnight it'll be gone. It's just a matter of when eruption is faster than erosion. So what? Yeah. So what happens is the 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 angle of the volcanic uh, mount becomes untenable and it collapses on itself and gradually sort of is building. But but the but its angle of attack needs to be. I assume a lot of the problem is at the surface where there's actual wind and wave activity, and that's enough to crumble to to. To crumble it back into the sea? Yeah, to sea? crumble it back below the surface. Mm. Because I think in general, it's often very close. Like in general now, uh, Ferdinandea is there, but it's like 20 feet from the surface. Uh, its later history is kind of interesting. In 1986, in April of 1986, do you remember the, um, the there was a bombing of a Berlin disco yeah. that the Reagan administration linked to Libya. Gaddafi's government right. and immediately sent uh, a bombing... Raid that killed toward, uh, toward Tripoli. Gaddafi's adopted daughter. Oh, is that is that the one? I think. Oh, okay. Well, on well, the maybe that was the one for the Lockerbie bombing. I forget. We were bombing Libya a lot back then. Yeah, more sure. than you'd think. And on the way to bomb Tripoli, some U.S. planes spot 
something just below the surface smoking uh, just off the coast of North Africa. And we bombed it thinking we had found Libyan submarines. And it turned out we had just bombed Ferdinandea. It could have been anybody's submarine. <laughs> did they, did, did they like call around? Yeah, yeah of course you got to call around. Dimitri. Hey, you got a submarine? It's just the Doctor Strange love scene. I get, maybe it's the assumption that a Libyan submarine is steam powered. <laughs> yeah, why is it smoking? It's tobacco smoke. They've all got like a hookah. So we bombed Ferdinandia. Would Libya have even had submarines? Now that I think about this. No. You don't think Libya has much of a submarine fleet. Maybe they have some Italian like World War II vintage submarines that they've kept going that were steam powered. This seems like maybe not great decision making on the part of a pilot. Yeah, um, or or his commander back on the the USS Abraham Lincoln. But anyway, the Ferdinandia is one of the. Uh, it's a territory that has the unusual distinction of being claimed by four countries and then bombed by the U.S. <laughs> Before, even, <laughs> that's really that really God tells, bless America. That tells you everything you need to know about 19th century England, France, Italy, and Spain, and 20th century USA. Like they were all excited to put a flag on it. We just wanted to bomb it before we even knew what it was. Now, this is an interesting question about international law for that shoal then to sink back down beneath the surface. As soon as it goes below the surface of the ocean, it no longer is an ownable, contestable piece of land it's some somehow yeah there's a magic thing at sea level it touches the sky and it becomes a place you can plant a flag but because there's all kinds of law that revolves around you know how far out to sea territoriality goes right, right? so suddenly a new dot appearing would totally change that diagram but you couldn't build a 25 foot tower on top of it and call it the united kingdom i guess it has to be actual could you do it with earth moving like if you if if it was just like a foot from the surface, could like some Italians go build a sandcastle? Right. It's it's an interesting quirk of maritime law that it's got to be that it's if it's like if it's only four pebbles. I mean, this is a, I guess one of those logic questions. If it's one pebble above the sea, isn't an island? If not, how many pebbles does it does an island require? There definitely is a case where. Uh for political purposes, piles of stones have been placed on mountaintops to make sure that one peak is higher than another. Right. Um, Just like the, the radio tower on the top of the Sears building or whatever, it, it does it make it the tallest building in the world? Right. Uh, Italy is more concerned about the status of Ferdinandea than any other country. I guess they learned their lesson in 1831, and they do not want to get scooped by the British again. Uh, so today, with uh, you know, there there was some volcanic activity in 2000 and 2002. That's really uh, you know looks very similar to what happened in 1831. And in the hopes that Ferdinandia the Shoal could rise again, Italy decided to get ahead of the curve this time, and they sent divers down to plant a flag with. Um, with the Sicilian flag, which, by the way, is one of the weirder flags. Can you picture the Sicilian flag? It's it's the like it's like the Isle of Man flag with the 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 propeller made of human legs, right? Um, but this one has Medusa's head in the middle, right? Uh, so it's a real. I mean, that, that's the kind of flag that really says it's not. That's not about national pride. That's like stay away. Yeah, right. That's a it's a thing that you would put on a sarcophagus of of 
nuclear waste, right? Yeah, like it, it, it looks like a, a fallout shelter sign. If you're if made you're of human a flesh, and you see a flag like that and don't understand any other iconography, you're going to go, whatever that was. <laughs> I don't want to wake it up. I like that Cecilia's Sicily's destiny as a like organized crime destination is foreshadowed right. in its flag, like. This flag is we're dangerous. But I Stay feel away. like it could also be it's it's a little bit like uh like some of the iconography around the the nation of Macedonia. There's a little bit of a feeling that you would like to retain some independence and connect yourself to ancient times because there are people around you that are like, Well, Macedonia is not really a thing. <laughs> Sicily's just part of Italy, right? And you're like, No. Yeah, they seem to have really had that in mind. They uh they got one of these surviving Bourbon noblemen, you know, this guy named Prince Carlo. Of course. Who, who would be some Bourbon principe if that were still a thing. Right. And they got him to, uh, to come to the ceremony. Italian TV filmed them, like, getting, making sure there's a marble plaque and a flag now on the summit of, of Ferdinandia, just in case it comes up again. 20 feet below the surface. Yes, this is, not, this is well under the surface of the Mediterranean, 20, 25 feet down. But it's, it says, this piece of land, once Ferdinandia, belonged and shall always belong to the Sicilian people. Here, here. So, it's, it's like that place, uh, that little island between Iceland and Greenland that, um, that Denmark and Canada keep fighting right. over, right? Yeah, uh, and it, it's funny that it's not really appealing to the Italian national pride. It's really Sicilians. It's like right. people in this local fishing village, guess what? This little dot will be yours if it ever comes up again. <laughs> so they're ready. They have pre, this time they have pre-colonized Ferdinandea, should it ever come back. I think the, cra- the plaque has since been... Um, so it's been cracked and vandalized, maybe. Course, I don't know if it's right. fishing fleets or, or just... Um, sea monsters. Possibly sea monsters. But it's a popular scuba destination right. because it's so, it would be. it's so close to the surface. Uh, and it's near a picturesque Italian coast. But it is kind of funny to imagine that if Ferdinandea does rise again... Brigadoon style, maybe the flag will come first. <laughs> and that will be the first thing there. It'll, it'll be lifted from below. <laughs> That's why they did it, right? It, it pre-claims itself. I hope they have a webcam for that, because wouldn't that be awesome if you could <laughs> if you could see it happening in real time? I wonder if nations employ a certain amount of, or a certain, like, maybe every nation has one geologist that's aware of all the places on the earth where an island might appear... And has like a, a red phone or something to call the call the navy and say get over there. Like three days from now, there's going to be an island, and you want to get your flag in it first. That would be a great job, monitoring. Right. It's you're, you're essentially an obstetrician, <laughs> but but for islands. <laughs> and that concludes Ferdinandea. Entry 461.RV1620, certificate number 50204 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you are an inhabitant of Ferdinandia and didn't know the history of the formation of your nation. You're always like, why is this flag here? Yeah. So why is, is it all this, wet? What is this head of Medusa? <laughs> uh, we are proud to have brought you a little closer to the history of your of your place and time. Um, you can examine our place and time by going into the time machine function on your future computers and examine our social media accounts 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. I should also say that on Twitter, there is an account called Omnibus Out of Context, which often takes quotes from our episodes, out of context, as the name suggests, and publishes them to a hilarious in, uh, effect. Ken and I both follow Omnibus Out of Context and kind of rejoice in the fact that we often can't tell which of us said the thing. I feel like maybe one time out of four, I'm sure, and another one time out of four, I have a pretty good sense of who it is. We each have... And then I'm just guessing the other half of the time. Yeah, we each have kind of characteristic turns of phrase, but a lot of times the joke or the out-of-context statement could have come from either of our mouths, which which makes the... the uh, makes the account even more hilarious. Uh, if you want to see Ken being hilarious on Twitter, you can go to at Ken Jennings. By the time you hear this, it's possible that I will have resumed posting angry screeds on Twitter at John Roderick. I'll keep you away. Uh, but I am on Instagram uh, making Mary at the same locale at John Roderick. Uh, you can email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You can uh, frolic with uh, other fans of the program on Facebook and a subreddit and Discord and wherever else postal stamps are sold. Uh, those are all under the Futurelings moniker. You can mail us things. Ken is going through our mailbag right now. I noticed there's a bag over there with three bottles of hot sauce that you keep not revealing and now suddenly you're holding one in your hand i can't wait to see what it is so nate uh i guess because you uh slandered banana sauce wait a minute i don't think i slandered it i just just imagined it i imagined what spaghetti with banana sauce would be you were not unequivocally in favor of putting banana ketchup on spaghetti and i'm not saying that's right or wrong i've had spaghetti with ketchup on it normal ketchup and um, it's not as good as what we think of as spaghetti sauce. Well, Nate uh, has sent us three bottles of Filipino banana sauce, which is red. That's exciting. Well, I, gu- I knew it was red. I guess it, ingredients, water, sugar, banana, cornstarch, vinegar, salt, onion, chili, garlic, and yellow and red colorings. It's like Sri Racha except made of bananas. Do you think it does it taste banana? We have three bottles of it now. We can, <laughs> you can take one. I'll take we're one. We're going to find well, out. Wait, you're the one that throws parties. Why don't you have a party at your house and Mindy can use banana sauce to make a dish? Mindy is now part of a club that gets together once a month and they make uh, dishes from all over the world and they're going in alphabetical order. They How make, long till we get to the Philippines? A while. It's going to be years because they go once a month it's going to be like bet- uh, between 10 and 15 years before they get to the philippines can't we jump they, the they're, they're on Ang- they're on angola can we they're jump doing the antigua and barbuda this month hmm. so we're not going to get to but nate recommends that we put this on uh rice spam and eggs a classic okay. filipino breakfast yeah. uh, and somebody uh we i guess you requested currency at some point so some of these envelopes have Weird currencies in them. Eric sent you. Uh... Oh, us. Uh, so we each get one, so we don't fight over them. Hellbank Corporation money. Those are fake. 
you don't think the Hell Bank is a real? Did, oh, you, did oh, your dad found the Hell Bank Corporation? Oh, they're they're from Asia, or at least pretend I to be. I think they are fake from Asia. Yeah. Although it does list on the back, pu- look, putatively Asian officers of this of this agency. They look like they were made on a color copier. Am I wrong? No, they were definitely made on a color copier. Okay. So I think we might have more fake currency in here. Oh, and ten year old Murphy drew this delightful. A cartoon of me winning on Jeopardy, an oh, orange marker. How wonderful, Murphy. Thank you for listening and celebrating Ken. <laughs> it's, got, it's got me uh, losing to Watson. Here's Watson, the computer. Here's right. Alex coming out without his trousers on. Sure, I celebrate both those moments. Here's me unable to believe it. Can't believe it. You can see by the arrow that says still unable to believe it. Yeah. This is really uh, seeing my life in orange... Um, Smelly, smelly marker. Oh, does it smell like marker or does it smell like orange? I don't know. I thought it might be one of those things where, you know, the S- sniff. The blue smells like yeah. raspberry or, or whatever. Um, Famous blue fruit, the raspberry. I don't even like that. It's because red was already taken, basically. Red already has strawberry and cherry, so they had to give raspberry a new color. Right, I see. And light blue didn't have anything, but it's, it's dumb. It's also the sexiest of all the fruit. That's why it gets blue. You think raspberry, let me get this straight. You think raspberry is the sexiest fruit? Mm, no, probably peach is the, a peach, a peach is the sexiest fruit, but I don't want a peach and peanut butter sandwich. I want a raspberry jam and peanut butter sandwich. I see. So and you want, you want a peach in the sheets, but a raspberry in the streets. Exactly. Got it. Oh, also, um, yeah, you can support great moments like these at uh, our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, donate even a pittance, although, of course, if you can donate more than a pittance, don't feel limited to a pittance. Donate a pittance, a full, a full pot of money. <laughs> and, uh, and have access to all of our fantastical bonus content. Where we do effectively this, open the mail, except we open mail and argue with you about it instead of just celebrate your banana ketchup. If you love the long, meandering outros of this show, we now do one for money. (laughs) Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. Uh, The map will change. We hope and pray that it won't happen in catastrophic fashion. We hope it'll in gradual uh, erosive Pangea building kinds of processes but if that catastrophe we fear comes soon this recording like all our recordings could very well be our final word to you but if providence allows we hope to return to you soon with another entry in the omnibus <laughs> <laughs>